I'm Nate Swick, and this is the American Birding Podcast. Merry Christmas bird count season, and welcome back to another edition of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. And I just want to start off by thanking everyone for the kind words and responses we've gotten since our launch two weeks ago. As you probably can guess, the amount of work that goes into a project like this before it even goes live is, is pretty significant. So it's really great to get to this point, and it's really great to receive the feedback that we've uh, received so far. It's been very satisfying. Uh, so thank you all for that. We have some really great stuff for you this time around. We're going to give our 2016 Bird of the Year Chestnut Collared Longspur an appropriate send-off. I'll share a conversation I had with Scott Summershoe, a biologist with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service who is working with Chestnut Collared Longspur and other prairie birds in the Northern Great Plains. Then ABA webmaster Greg Neese and Birding Magazine editor Ted Floyd discuss white-cheeked goose identification, that's Canada versus cackling, and offer some info that you might be able to use on an upcoming CBC or wherever you're birding this winter. And speaking of Canada, congratulations are certainly in order for our friends and members in Canada who, it seems, are on the verge of getting a new national bird. The organization Canadian Geographic ran a survey in 2016 in which people were asked to choose from among a list of birds. Uh, despite finishing in third place on the online voting, Gray Jay was the one that Canadian Geographic nominated. Uh, I, for one, am okay with that, and not just because I was on Team Graham Jay from the beginning. From a birder's perspective, I think it was the obvious choice. They're definitely associated with the North. They're tough, they're smart, they're friendly. These are all things that I certainly associate with friends from Canada. And they are personality traits that many Canadians consider representative of their national character as well. And of course, these are all the arguments that are made by those pushing Grey Jay over alternatives like Common Loon or Snowy Owl or, God forbid, Canada Goose. And none of this is really binding, of course. The parliament still has to vote on adding a new national symbol, and that's probably not something that is super high on its list of priorities. But the controversy is the real story. Gray Jay winning despite losing the popular vote, as it were, and that was of interest to the media. And what do journalists and headline writers do when birds are in the news? They pun it up. The choice has caused a flap. Tonight, one particular outcome really flies in the face of expectations brought up Twitter because, yes, a lot of people are tweeting mm. about this, if you will. Some ruffled feathers. Let me show you what I'm talking about. If bird is the word, then that word is the whiskey jack. But do you even know what that is? It is the foul announcement that has ruffled more than a few feathers. I asked to take a flight of fancy. Now, I certainly don't blame copywriters for doing this. I'm sure they have to write a great many frustrating or depressing headlines. And the opportunity to let loose a little is probably hard to resist. Bird stories are human interest stories. They're a place to have a little fun. And so while I definitely roll my eyes when I see things like the New York Times headline, uh, which read, A Proposal for Canadian National Bird Ruffles Feathers, uh, I'm almost as happy to see it as anything, if for no other reason than to see which bird-related pun they go with. There are a lot in regular usage, and I think that's a big part of the reason they're so prevalent. Anyway, congratulations, Canada, on the would-be national bird. Congratulations to copywriters for the low-hanging fruit. The bird community is always happy to contribute to the collection of human interest stories that fill out news reports and periodicals. We consider it a feather in our cap. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Your Rare Bird Alert is next. These are your Rare Bird highlights for the period through the last week of December. It's been a big month for Eurasian waterfowl in the ABA area. We talked a little bit last time about common shell ducks and how there seems to be a pattern of vagrancy for that species in eastern Canada and New England in recent years. We saw a bit more of that last week when three common shell ducks were discovered on a CBC in New Brunswick. 
An apparent wild-seeming common poacher has been present in Humboldt County, California for a few days and seen by many birders in that period. This represents only the fourth individual ever seen in the lower 48, all from California. And a gray-like goose near Providence, Rhode Island is being treated by locals as a wild bird by virtue of its structure and behavior. With so many other Euro geese in the ABA area this winter, that would seem to be a fair bet at this time. At the very least, Big Year leader John Weigel made the effort to go after it, which says something about what the consensus is on that bird. It would be a state first for Rhode Island. We had two additional and less contentious first records in the ABA area this week. The first was a Smith's Longspur in southern Florida, a not completely unexpected record as Longspurs are not unknown to wander. The second was the fun one, though. Teen birders Jack and Ryan Bushong found a purple sandpiper in the middle of a blizzard, no less, in Summit County, Colorado a wild potential first for the inland state. This isn't the first time purple sandpiper has been found out west. Last year, California had one, possibly two, which represented a first record for that state, and Alberta had one in the not-too-distant past. This purple sandpiper stuck around for a few days in a pond, completely surrounded by ice and snow, a really bizarre situation where it was seen by several Colorado birders, a really neat record for a lot of reasons, and it even prompted a birder's flock headline in a newspaper in Colorado, so you know it's the real deal. To hear about all the notable vagrant birds in the ABA area for any given week, be sure to check the ABA blog every Friday morning. You can also get real-time updates on vagrants for every state and province in the ABA Rare Bird Alert Facebook group. You can find that at facebook.com slash groups slash ABA Rare. My guest today is Scott Summershoe. He's the land bird coordinator with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. He's doing a lot of work uh, working with prairie species in the Great Plains of Colorado. Uh, thanks for joining me, Scott. Thanks for having me, Nate. Appreciate it. We're, we're talking a lot about our 2016 Bird of the Year chestnut collared longspur, um, and that's one of the target species that you are focusing on in your research. So could you explain where you're doing that work and, and why that's such an important place for prairie birds? Yeah, so my position as land bird coordinator for this region, the Fish and Wildlife Service, I cover eight states, um, not just Colorado, but Montana, Wyoming, and the Dakotas, where chestnut collards breed, and some of our other priority grassland birds, Sprague's Pippet, McCown's Longspur, and Baird Sparrow. Um, there's a lot of attention being drawn to these four birds for a variety of reasons, generally kind of a small breeding range. The overall population declines, according to BBS, are dramatic from 75% population loss from, for Baird Sparrows to about 95% for McCown's Longspur in just about 45 years. Loss of grasslands on the breeding grounds and the wintering grounds. We don't even know what they're doing in the, during migration or really what, where they are, what habitats they're using. There's lots of questions about um, chestnut collards and why they're declining. And um, we're getting a lot of research going on with a variety of partners. And in, in, in Montana, sort of the last core area where these birds are still quite abundant, mm-hmm. large blocks of grassland still on the landscape. Good opportunity to look at patch size and habitat structure and all the dynamics of, of what these grassland birds are doing. What is the actual state of the habitat in those places in, in eastern Montana? Well, northeast, north-central-ish Montana around Bedoyne National Wildlife Refuge, which is in Malta and Phillipson Valley County, it's still largely grassland. There's a lot of CRP up there mm-hmm. as well, which is unfortunately being plowed under right now. But there's it's about the largest last big block of grassland, mixed grass prairie in, in the U.S. And it's got lots of chestnut collar long spurs. I had 36 Sprague's pippets on one BBS route last wow. year. If that says something, <laughs> there's a lot of these birds are, are quite abundant. It's, it's large patches, which is really it's really nice. Uh, and do you find that within that sort of larger matrix, there are, are places where chestnut collared longshrews prefer um, as a certain habitat that they like, you know, within that larger larger space? Yeah, that's exactly right. So they're not, you know, you can have dry mixed grass prairie 
for miles, but the struck if it's too dry the year before, vegetation isn't quite right, food resources aren't quite right, they're just not there. And they can mm-hmm. be very locally common and then completely absent from some other areas. But in the little bit of time that I've been up there, there's always a few in the same few places. And sometimes there's a lot more between years. So they're very weather dependent and highly nomadic between years, which makes research on the same individuals quite difficult because they're not very site faithful. Yeah. So these BBS routes that you're running are going to be, you, know, you get it wildly, you can get wildly different numbers from year to year, I'm sure. Oh, absolutely. So part of the effort that the Fish and Wildlife Service embarked on a couple of years ago is to double the number of BBS routes in eastern Montana, primarily looking, hmm. getting into these grasslands where there's just not a lot of data. So we, some of the new routes that I took up are in these big blocks of grass. And most years, Montana didn't even have 36 Briggs pipits total across all hmm. BBS routes combined. So to get them on one route, and I had between seven and ten on the other routes, we were, you know, we were missing sort of that that those big core areas of grassland birds. So we're getting a lot more information on where these guys are on the landscape. That's great. So, so what are the greatest threats to the uh, these prairie birds, and uh, you know, not just chestnut collared longspur, but also the uh, the other three species that you're working on? Yeah. So the sweetest species, you know, we suspect it's habitat loss loss of mm-hmm. grasslands on the landscape, even though there are still some big blocks of grass, big patches out there, you know, they're fragmented. Tree invasion is bringing in more predators. you got energy development, whether it's gas and oil. There's a variety of different issues like that that are going on. And that and that's just on the breeding grounds, on the wintering grounds, the Chihuahuan Desert, where these, these four grassland birds in particular winter in large numbers. That's being plowed under basically mm-hmm. uncontrolled. Some of the, the stuff that I've seen, the numbers that I've read, you know, potentially in about 10 years, it, it could be nearly all gone right. under center, center pivot av- agriculture. And that's, um, that's going to be a big problem for these guys. So a lot of this land that you're working on, it's uh, privately owned, not, not public land? Yeah, a lot of, the, a lot of this is private mm-hmm. um, in this part of Montana. And we've got a lot of partners, biologists with the Partners for Fish and Wildlife Program within the Fish and Wildlife Service and a lot of other federal and state agencies that are doing lots of work on these right. private ranches to address grassland bird issues and um, whether it's restoration or maintenance mm-hmm. but getting some getting some new research going on on these birds is is going to be critical because uh, when I started in this position about 2 years ago I started looking into these grassland birds and what do we know what do we don't know about them and it's it's startling how little we know about them. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been very few just nesting success studies. How are these birds doing on the breeding grounds and what habitat mm-hmm. quality is and survival of juveniles? We're just starting to ask that question. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really basic stuff that we don't know about these guys, which makes it really hard to figure out where limiting factors are and why these populations are, are disappearing. Right. So when you're talking to these uh, private landowners, do you do you feel like you're getting a fair amount of, of buy-in from them uh, when you're talking about the needs of these prairie species on their properties? Yeah, I don't, I don't really have too good of a handle on how private landowners perceive this stuff or if they're even aware of it. You know, a lot of the private mm-hmm. landowners are aware of long-billed curlews or marble right. godwits nesting on the ranches because they're big and obvious and they attack you when you're right, out right, there. Right. Yeah, yeah. But um, in terms of the grassland birds, you know, these guys, these folks haven't seen Sprague's pipits before. Mm-hmm. You know, they probably yeah, never who, even noticed yeah, them singing because yeah. you don't even see them, you know. From that perspective, I don't really have much of an answer for, for how the private landers do. I mean, there's lots of easements and lots of lots of things going on. And, you know, one of the concerns, one of the concerns is wearing out these private landowners with 
so many different people coming wanting to do research or wanting to go, oh, you, would you be interested in doing CRP and, and doing some grassland restoration? Or mm-hmm. we've well, got these little hedgerows. Let's cut those out because that's causing problems. You know, mm-hmm. there's lots of you're wearing out the private landowners and that that can ultimately take a toll on whether they participate in programs or not. Do you think that there are easy ways for private landowners to make changes to their land that help these prairie birds without having a negative impact on private interests, their their cattle running, their crops, et cetera? Yeah, in a lot of cases, this is all grazed land where these grassland birds are. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's lots of opportunity to tweak the number of cattle per acre. You can do it in, you know, in wet years. You can ultimately put more out there, and they're not mm-hmm. going to graze it down to dirt. And the grassland birds can do just fine. So it's it's almost on an annual basis, but there's lots of opportunity to work with the with mm-hmm. with the ranchers and their grazing interests and and their bottom line, which is which is important. But these birds are still up there on that landscape in these mm-hmm. big patches of grassland because they've been doing something that's pretty good. Right. They're still there. Ultimately, we don't know this, that they're necessarily successfully nesting and raising young that are surviving. Mm-hmm. We don't know that quite yet. We're working on some of that stuff, but the birds are still there. So and there's a lot to be said for that. So what, what kind of research do you think is the most important? What is your, your highest priority with these birds? So there's a lot of unknowns about these grassland birds. One of the, mm-hmm. the big things being undertaken by um, Bird Conservancy of the Rockies and the Fish and Wildlife Service and sort of different approaches and different scales is nesting success and habitat quality. Um, what, what is the structure and height of the grass? Mm-hmm. And what, how does that relate to nest density and nesting success and you know, ultimately juvenile survival? So mm-hmm. the project that uh, my program with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is initiating next year through Montana State University is looking at habitat quality, nesting success, and nest density of these birds. Try to figure out, you know, we can go out and I can I can look and go, yeah, we're, we'll have sprigs, beards, and chestnut collards out here, but are they doing well? Mm-hmm. We don't we don't have that answer. So when agencies come to us, what do we need to do for these grassland birds? We're really concerned about you know where this is going to be in 10 or 15 years. We don't really know what to tell them other than keep grass on the ground, and we hope they're doing well. So we need to we need to start figuring out how to manage these grasslands for structure, for height. But then, of course, you have the weather, the weather variables. So if you have a couple dry years, the birds aren't going to be there. They're going to be somewhere right. else. So it's really complicated systems, um, really complicated management. But if you understand it at a larger scale, then we can work with, with folks on the ground to try to step that down to, to do things that are just a little bit better for the birds. So what are the, some of the, uh, the larger, longer-term projects or issues that you're dealing with and what you want to find out? So one of the big things that we're trying to do in our program is not just get some research projects started and helping facilitate other, other projects in a coordinated, collaborative way, but working on developing a, uh, basically a tri-national grassland bird plan, focusing mm-hmm. on chestnut collard and McCown's longspur, sprigs and Baird's, sprigs, pippin and Baird's sparrow, to address you know, the large-scale needs for these birds. What do we know? What do we not know? Um, how do we how do we rank and prioritize all these things that we need to figure out about these birds to keep them from whether it's going extinct or being petitioned and put on the endangered species list? Mm-hmm. What can we do to reduce the population declines using the new partners in flight um, plan rather than doing a population objective, X number of birds on the landscape? How about a trend objective? So chestnut collar long spurs are declining about 4% per year, which is just terrible. But if we can get that down to, say, 1%, declining only 1% per year. Maybe that's maybe that's a goal of, of these large scale plans. We're not going to be able to, to turn it around and double the population size or something like that. But mm-hmm. 
we got to start somewhere. Yeah, so we've got a we've got a, um, a committee of, of folks with state and federal agencies and NGOs and across essentially three countries now to build a plan to to start addressing these issues with these four birds and ideally, ultimately, you know, as we rank out and prioritize all these needs and knowns, this can be used by researchers to figure out okay, I want to work on grassland birds. What what do we need to know so we don't just mm-hmm. go out and do research just to do research. Let's really focus in and hone in on what we really need to figure out about these birds. What do we really need to start understanding so we can change what we do on the ground or modify how we we don't just do restoration randomly across the landscape. We need to focus this and how do we focus this better? Mm-hmm. Um, and then that can be used by funding organizations as well. We've got all these proposals, which ones are, are really recognized by all these organizations and agencies that developed one of these big plans, these are the highest priority things that we need, mm-hmm. we need to be knowing about these grassland birds, that we need to understand about these grassland birds. Um, you know, maybe we can use, the, use this document as a, uh, a guide for funding projects. Um, so what can, um, is there anything that normal birders on the ground can do to help uh, prairie conservation? Besides, you know, donating money, obviously, and time to I was just going to say, yeah. work. <laughs> Contributing to, uh, you know, organizations that are, are doing research on the ground right. or um, helping with easements. There's mm-hmm. lots of nonprofits that are doing doing that kind of research or doing that kind of work. With things like reporting concentrations of these birds to eBird or things like that, is, is that sort of thing helpful? Yeah, one opportunity for, for birders to, to get engaged with prairie birds is, is eBirding and um, letting folks know where they're finding concentrations of birds. And maybe they're on public land and maybe... You know, biologists, regional biologists know about them. Maybe not. Um, these birds right. move around widely from year to year. Um, I've seen that in my little bit of time doing my BBS routes up in Montana. Um, as numbers fluctuate dramatically, it's unbelievable. Yeah. And then that's, a, that's a great start because we need to figure out where these birds are and what mm-hmm. kind of landscapes they're using if we're going to be able to try to do anything about it and address it. No, I'm, I'm always curious about that sort of thing because um, – you know, there, there's sort of a sense when you when you look at the declining populations of some of these birds. It, I mean, it can feel overwhelming and and hopeless sometimes. Um, you look at you know 85, 90 percent declines in in things like chestnut collared longspur and things like you know McCown's longspur. Mm-hmm. And th- these birds are in places where birders don't always go to. I mean, they're they're difficult to find even in the best of situations a lot of times. Um, you know, it's it's nice to know that there are still places out there where there are where they're are are doing relatively well and that birders can go out there and they can see them and they can, you know, contribute in that sort of way. Yeah. If you look at eBird for Phillips and Valley County, Montana, there was not, mm-hmm. there were, there's a few places where birders regularly are going to, to see, get their sprigs and birds and just the mm-hmm. collards and these other BBS routes. And of course I'm eBirding like every spot, like all over the place. So you can mm-hmm. see if you look, pull up Western Meadowlark, you'll see every single BBS point I put in there. And but there's a lot of value in, in seeing some of that stuff. And other folks have gone out to some of these areas and are um, becoming aware of other places to go look for these birds. Mm-hmm. And these just incre- I mean, it's grass as far as you can see. The landscapes are unbelievable. And and the other species, it's not just these land birds that are they're out there. You know, there's long-billed curlews and willets and avocets and marble godwits and frugivorous mm-hmm. hawks and golden eagles and burrowing owls, et cetera, et cetera. Waterfowl and shorebirds, other shorebirds flying around. It's uh, it's an incredibly dynamic, amazing place. You know, the first time I I got to go up and see it, I you know I had sort of my expectations and they were just completely mm-hmm. blown away because it's not just flat, straight grassland. It's rolling hills and you've got these washes here and there and there's wetlands. You know, you're up in the prairie mm-hmm. potholes. There's there's wetlands all over the place and waterfowl all over the place and 
Um, it's, Nesting it's shorebirds, just, uh, which I think is something that a lot of birders don't always appreciate. <laughs> oh, Whether there's Wilson's phalaropes flying yeah. around all over the place. And this year, you know, this past year was quite wet where my, my routes were. And mm-hmm. I had Wilson snipe on half of my points where I didn't even have them the year before. And there was sore just calling. I had sore on 15 points on my one of my routes. Just, I mean, obviously calling unsolicited. They're yeah. all of it's just a, a incredibly dynamic place. It's just uh, it's overwhelming. Some of those some of those places. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. I really appreciate you coming in to talk with me about this. Um, and hopefully, we, it's an appropriate send off to our 2016 Bird of the Year. Um, thanks for all the work you do, and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Knight. Appreciate it. In this week's commentary, ABA webmaster Greg Neese and birding editor Ted Floyd talk about Canada versus cackling goose identification and documentation. But before I throw it over to them, I'd like to ask our listeners a favor. Uh, We're looking for a better name for this segment than commentary, and we'd like to offer you the opportunity to help us. Uh, We're looking for something that sort of implies thoughtful commentary on birds and birding. Uh, Maybe using bird-related language, that would definitely be a plus. I'm not against puns. Uh, I think I've made my stance on that clear in this episode. Uh, In fact, I threw out the possibility of calling this coming segment Greg and Ted's Excellent ID Venture, Id Venture, but that was roundly discouraged. Uh, So you can find us on Facebook or Twitter. Please let us know if you have any ideas. Uh, We'll definitely consider any good ones that you have. Uh, Now, over to you, Greg. It's a scenario that plays out every year. Well, at least for the past 10 years or so during the winter holidays. A new birder on their first Christmas bird count is challenged with a flock of Canada geese. But are they all Canada geese? Are they even mostly Canada geese? Birding Magazine editor Ted Floyd is going to walk us through that challenge. Hi, Ted. Hey, Greg. How's it going? Good. Okay, so we had one species and now we have two. What's that all about? If you've been birding for a little while, you surely remember the uh, the good old days when there was just the one species of the bird we call the Canada goose. But back in 2004, the American Ornithologist Union decided that two species are involved. So the bird called the Canada goose was split in two, with one population retaining the old name of Canada goose and a new population taking on the name of cackling goose. So we now have two species of geese, formerly known as the Canada goose, a cackling goose and a Canada goose. Okay, so now we have two where we had one. And how different are they really? Well, there's the rub. They actually look pretty much the same. If you focus just on the the feathers, sort of the patterns of color and um, contrast on the birds, the cackling goose and the Canada goose are practically identical looking. Again, getting back to this birder out there looking at a flock of Canada geese, how difficult is this? Right. So you do need to look past the plumage of the bird, which is something that many of us aren't accustomed to doing, and instead focus on the size and shape and to some extent the behavior and ecology of the bird. They are very different in size and shape. Basically, the Canada goose is a large bird, and the cackling goose is a relatively small bird. Uh, The proportions are different, too, with the Canada goose being uh, longer-necked, thinner-necked. It has a longer bill and a more sloping forehead. Uh, the cackling goose is the opposite of everything I just said. It's going to be a shorter, sort of dumpier bird with a shorter and thicker neck. Uh, the forehead is much steeper and the bill is much stubbier. So those are the differences in size and shape you really want to focus on. One question I have is, we have these two species and one of them is named cackling goose. Now that implies that it sounds different. 
Right. So the Canada goose and the cackling goose do have average differences in their vocalizations. I want to emphasize that these are average differences. There's an awful lot of overlap between them. But on the whole, the cackling goose is going to be a higher pitched, sort of squeakier vocalization than the deep, throaty, honest-to-goodness honking sound of a Canada goose. Again, be careful with that one, but with a lot of experience and maybe just a little bit of conjecture and speculation, uh, you can recognize the differences. And um, uh, for me, in my own experience in particular, when I hear maybe a single cackling goose against a backdrop of Canada geese, it really does sound a lot higher pitched to me. Okay. And, and what advice would you give to a birder that's, that's faced with separating and counting a mixed flock like this? So in many cases, it's going to just be one species or the other. It's just going to be the small little cackling geese or the great big Canada geese. But you often do get situations where they're mixed in pretty well and where you see a lot of variation among the individuals as well. In terms of just counting the birds, the absolute best way to do it is to literally count from one to two to three to four to however many birds there are in the flock, noticing the big Canada geese and the small cackling geese as you go along and also realizing that sometimes the birds cannot be assigned to one category or another. But the, you know, the bottom line is this is all supposed to be a lot of fun. Um, but you are doing citizen science. You do try to be accurate. Yeah, a lot of the really good population numbers that we have for Canada geese and cackling geese and, and so many other birds do come from folks, just rank and file ordinary bird watchers like you and me who are out there uh, taking surveys, uh, performing censuses, doing breeding bird atlases in the summer or Christmas bird counts in the winter. So it really does make a difference for informing science and, and policy. But uh on the other hand, we do need to realize that we're out there trying to have a lot of fun while we're pondering the differences between Canada geese and, and cackling geese. Right on, Ted. Thanks a lot. It's really a lot of fun talking with you. Thanks for having me. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. You can find us at www.aba.org. Join us. We'd love to have you as a member. President of the ABA and the executive producer of this podcast is Jeff Gordon. Technical production is by John Lowry with help from Greg Neese and David Hartley. John's band, The Hangabouts, also wrote and performed our theme music. You can find the American Birding Association online and on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter, at ABA. You can also reach me if you have any questions or comments about this podcast at podcast at ABA.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Nate Swick. We'll see you next time.